Hello everyone, I'm Juana Yordekescu and you're listening to the We Include podcast. Here we seek to bring you the most relevant and off-the-shelf diversity and inclusion initiatives. Today we're landing in London, home of Even Break, an award-winning not-for-profit specialist job board run by disabled people for disabled people. We're speaking with Jane Hatton, founder and CEO of Even Break, member of the executive board of the Recruitment Industry Disability Initiatives and trustee of ADD, an international platform for disability activists in Africa and Asia. And just a lovely person all around. It is my pleasure to have Jane tell her story to you. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Jane. Welcome to We Include. We are delighted to have you here. How are you? Hello. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very well, thank you. (laughs) Um, I think I I was talking to you last week around, I've been stalking you. I I think I should be like professional stalker on my LinkedIn profile, (laughs) comes with the job, but um, uh, just because I'm so impressed with the work that you do and I feel that everybody should hear more about it. I hear, I I feel more employers should be aware of the services you bring, but also um, the impact that it has on the people actually needing it. So we're here to talk about that today. I would I would love to maybe hear from you uh, who you are tell the audience why why are you yeah running this direction uh, for all of us yeah well so I'm Jane Hatton and um, I was one of the 83 percent of disabled people who became disabled as an adult but interestingly before that I was always interested in diversity and equality and equity and inclusion. And so I was um, an independent consultant around diversity and inclusion, um, covering the whole, you know, the whole areas of diversity. So race, gender, sexual orientation, as well as disability and and many others. And um, one of the things I found when I was talking to employers about disability, particularly, um, I'd kind of be faced with one of two reactions. One would kind of be, why would I want to employ a disabled person? I mean, I wouldn't say it in those exact words, True. but <laughs> I'm sure I knew what they meant. Um, or a bit more positively, they'd say, you know, we recognize that this is a, a pool of talent that we should be tapping into, but we don't know how to, and, and they don't apply. And so I spoke to disabled people and said, mm-hmm. uh, why aren't you applying to the second lot of, of employers? And they said, because we don't know which is which, you know, every employer Mm. says we are an equal opportunities employer, but actually our experience tells us that many aren't, you know, when it comes to disability. And I remember thinking, oh, that's bad. Somebody should do something about that. And then, of course, inevitably, I then became disabled. (laughs) And so um, there's somebody up there with a very quirky sense of humour. Sometimes uh, works like that. (laughs) (laughs) And and it kind of became a bit up close and personal. So um, I thought, well, actually, you know, something should be done about this. So um, not just my idea, I can't take the full credit for it, but we came up with the idea of having a job board that was just for disabled people and just for those employers who were um, enlightened enough to see us as a pool of talent rather than as a you know a source of, of problems. And so that's why I started um, Evenbreak back in, in 2011. But I have to say that, you know, fairness and inclusion, although we probably didn't call it that in those days, has yeah. been something that's been important to me really since I was a child. It was kind of, 
you know, children who say, it's not fair, I was one of those children. And uh, and I still detest things that don't seem fair or just or justifiable. And so, yeah, I've kind of gone that path, I think, because that was where partly accident left me because that I ended up being disabled. But as I say, I was interested in this field long before becoming disabled myself. I, I would love to, I will go in a minute in more about the principles and functioning principles of even break and what you're aiming at. But I realized throughout this interviews that most people who have a business for good, they have this <laughs> very early age sense of justice. Um, where do you think, and for me, it's always, I'm very curious, how does that get born in somebody? Is it family? Is it the community around? Is it the fact that you're faced more with injustice? Therefore, there is more to react to. What was it for you? If you, if there is any kind of realization? I really don't know. I mean, I, my mother was very, um, you know, similarly keen on, on diversity and inclusion. And actually, apparently, I have an uncle who I never met mm-hmm. who received some kind of award for starting the first mixed-race school in South Africa. Um, wow. So I don't know whether it's genetic. Both of my daughters <laughs> are very, very, uh, you know, they both work in in four good um, careers and professions. So I don't know if it's genetic but the first, the first um, thing that I was aware of or became aware of where, where fairness was really important to me was apparently, and I don't remember this, my mother told me that when I was at school, and so I would have been about seven or eight maybe, um, and I started getting very, um, not wanting to go to school and pretending to feel ill and all of those things. And she couldn't really get to the bottom of it because primary school I'd always loved. Yeah, And it turned out that it was because the children who had free school meals had to line up separately from those of us who didn't. Mm-hmm. And I was furious at this because I couldn't see why, why that would be the case. Why would you, why would you, and it didn't affect me personally. Oh, sure. But I just thought, why would you do that? It just seems so unfair and cruel and unnecessary and eventually I explained this to my mother, who apparently then went, took me to the head teacher and said, look, you know, there's a problem here. And um, from then on, apparently the children with free school meals had tokens and yes. they lined up with the rest of us. So for the, from our perspective, there was no way of knowing which children had free school meals and which didn't. And um, I don't know why that mattered to me so much, but apparently it did. Um, and I still feel the same about about things that are unjustifiable, that make people stand out or disadvantage people or, you know, cause people humiliation or it, I just cannot see the need for it. I mean, why would you do that? Got it. I mean, I, I picked on cruel and unnecessary and there's so much of that happening just by the habit of the system or just by uh, people not just taking the extra step to think, what could I do to just make this fair? What could I do to make this useful for everybody, cruel and unnecessary. I think there's there's so much of that. But what I notice, Jane is a, 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 a fighter since 10 years old, right? Around, yes. <laughs> let's make things fair. Um, yeah. And I think those probably just the compound interest of your experience together with the, the lived experience for disability, but also in the workforce, um, it, it really panned out. And I, 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 I followed how Evenbreak has built this dual approach. And I've seen this in a couple of other similar initiatives for different categories um, around helping employers truly understand how they could be inclusive, but also helping 
those in need to find the employers right for them? It has to be a two-pronged approach. And I think I started Even Break with very much the view that, um, which I still feel, you know, there's nothing wrong with disabled people. What, what you know, the reason we're disabled is the is the barriers that we face. Yeah. So we're disabled by the barriers rather than by our own condition. And so the solution to that problem is to remove the barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was very much about, I mean, the job board was the first thing we did. So that removed the barriers from disabled candidates in terms of knowing which employers would take them seriously because they could see if an employer has paid to advertise their jobs on a job board that's just for disabled people, clearly that's that's important to them. It's a very powerful demonstration of which employers are safe to apply for. And also for those employers who were more enlightened, it removed the barriers of um, disabled candidates not applying because they didn't know that they were inclusive. And so um, we built on what was happening with the, with the job board with the employers because the employers were saying to us, you know, okay, we're getting more disabled candidates now through even break, but, um, you know, we don't know if our recruitment process is fair or not or whether it's got barriers in it that we don't know about. Yeah. We don't know if our employment practices are as fair as they should be. We don't know if um, employees uh, are as knowledgeable about, you know, the, the social model of disability as they should be. And so we started um, offering services to employers so that they would be able to identify the barriers that were preventing disabled people from getting through the recruitment process um, and then reduce or remove those barriers. And so we developed, for example, a best practice portal, which is an online set of comprehensive practical um, resources that actually, you know, all employees within a, um, a subscribing organisation can access. And then it might be how to interview someone with autism or even what is autism, uh, for example, or yes. how to use a sign language interpreter, you know, very practical things. And also to supplement that, we offer training on uh, things like the social model of disability, mm-hmm. about why people shouldn't be frightened of disability, um, disability etiquette, inclusive recruitment, all of those kinds of things. And also consultancy. So some organisations will say, can you go through our recruitment process with us and help us to identify any barriers that there might be? So, for example, we have we only employ disabled people at even break because we need to have that internal lived experience of right. what candidates face when they're looking for work. And it's so, so useful for so many other reasons. For example, um, we have a couple of, of members of the team who are blind and use screen readers. Mm-hmm. So they can look at our client's website and career site and recruitment process and say, well, actually, this bit doesn't work with a screen reader. Yes. Or it would be so much better if you did this. So we really try and help employers um, to, to reduce those barriers uh, that might disable candidates from, from applying or from getting through the process. And then what we discovered was that we were having candidates come to us and mm-hmm. say, can you look at my CV or can you give me some advice or I don't know where to look for jobs or I don't know how to talk about my disability with a prospective right. employer. And for years, we were signposting them to other organisations, you know, which we knew about. And they'd come back often and say, ah, oh, but the eligibility for that particular support I don't live in the right postcode Mm -hmm. or I'm too disabled or I'm not disabled enough or I have the Mm -hmm. wrong condition or I'm on the wrong benefit or you know whatever it might be or it would be yes I can access that support but actually it's not suitable for me they want me to go on a one-year course 
and actually I just want someone to look at my CV or I want someone to help me build confidence or whatever it might have been. Or the support was offered by people who really didn't understand those additional barriers that disabled people face. Yes. So we decided to, with the help of a grant that we got a couple of years ago, um, set up a dedicated career support service for disabled people who were looking for new or better work and who were facing these barriers. And actually, you know, although some of the employers we work with are reducing them, the reality is that most employers out there aren't. And so disabled candidates really need support in how to navigate around those barriers. So, you know, how to talk about disability in a really positive way to people who still think of disability in a very negative way. Correct. Or how to ask for adjustments or how to write a CV when you might not have had the um, opportunities for work mm-hmm. experience. It would make your CV look good. It's got nothing to do with your abilities and everything to do with the lack of opportunities you've you've had access to. And so, um, yes, you're right. So now it is that kind of two... Well, it's almost a three-pronged approach. One of them is around the employers. One of them is around candidates navigating around barriers. But then over all of that is kind of uh, trying to change the narrative around disability so that at the moment it's seen as something that's either negative or, you know, it's people who are disabled are seen as objects of pity Mm -hmm. or charity cases or helpless Um, And that's not the case at all. And actually, we want to change the narrative from actually disabled candidates are premium candidates. They have so much more to offer than people who haven't had to navigate their way around all of these barriers. And um, and yes, so a kind of third string to our bow really is trying to just get people to think about disability differently. And that includes disabled people because we've been conditioned in thinking we're somehow less than everybody else. Absolutely. And I think this is where uh, what UK is doing at the moment, I find a little bit more advanced than other countries. I am shocked, I would say, and disappointed every time I speak to people, even in my job who are supposed to hire inclusively and develop programs for everybody, but people in talent and then hiring managers, that their organization, sometimes they they are uh, some local labor laws prescribing a certain minimal percentage of people with disabilities to have in your workforce. One, they have no idea that this exists. Two, most organizations prefer to pay. There's a fine associated with this. There's a certain cost and it's not small. Like if you look at Spain, if you look at Italy, if you look at Germany, if you look at other countries, it's it's an investment. And for me, every time I, I see this, I'm like, why are we not using this money to actually create programs that are tailored to us and we can first of all, benefit from the talent in the market because we're in the hiring business and it's a tough job out there. (laughs) But in the same time, make sure that we are um, very much in tune with what the labor market offers. And that means everybody, right? Uh, I think also that um, those um, sanctions for companies who don't employ disabled people gives out absolutely the wrong message because it's kind of we know disabled people aren't great in the workplace so we're going to have to bribe you to employ them whereas actually we should be saying almost you should pay more to employ disabled people because we offer so much more in the workplace so it's giving out entirely the wrong message which is you need to be bribed in order you wouldn't do that with anybody else would you you wouldn't pay people to employ women or to employ people of color it's ridiculous yeah and 
if if it wouldn't be for you and let's say I'm an employer in the UK and I need somebody to audit what I do and advise me and guide me, who is out there? Is there labor law? Um, is Are there entities around? More private companies that people should be aware about? Because for me, this is also a little bit difficult. Who would have the expertise uh, to do this at scale, right? And repeatedly correct. We're all learning, but let's say... <laughs> Not yeah. mess it up more than it is messed up. You're right. There aren't many. There aren't many out there. There are certainly there are some. There's Business yeah. Disability Forum, which is a, a membership organisation for organisations who want to be inclusive, um, and I think they probably struggle a little bit the same way as we do. That we tend to be, which is great. You know, we're working with people who are already motivated to become mm-hmm. more inclusive, but that's still the minority of employers, and most employers don't come to us because they don't value employing disabled people or becoming more inclusive. Increasingly they are, I think, because mm-hmm. I think since the pandemic and the, you know, the skill shortages have got, you know, much worse. Now I think employers are recognising we need to be looking more broadly for talent because we can't find it in the places we usually look. So that's, that's a positive. But I think for most organisations, if inclusion isn't important to them, there is no imperative to make it important for them. So for me, it's very much about, you know, education. And, and certainly we can offer support. There are other organisations, ideally led by disabled people, who can offer support to organisations. Um, Diversity and Ability are one. Business Disability Forum is one. Purple is one. So, you know, that um, there are others who are led by disabled people also. Um, but, you know, we're, we're few and far between and and our services aren't as sought after as they should be because actually every employer should be wanting to become more inclusive so they can attract more talent not because they want to be nice people or you know it's not about morals or ethics this is about it would be nice if they're just nice as well but (laughs) But actually you know even for for organizations which are hard-nosed profit-driven businesses you know this is a hard-nosed business issue it's about talent it's about productivity it's about Um, relating to new markets. You know, we know that disabled people form a huge, huge audience for, you know, as consumers of products and services. And if we're not making our products and services relevant or accessible to that audience, we're missing out on, you know, a huge amount of customers. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I think um, uh, I'm always uh, touched a bit when I see businesses, for example, even Wayfair, not necessarily because I'm here now, but looking at the portfolio of uh, like the catalog of products that are adaptable, right? And are accessible or booking.com when I was back there, like um, putting a bit of a ribbon, a mark on accommodations that are inclusive for mobility, for other areas, right? So I think in general, even if you have a software product, a hardware product, a service, if you tailor it and if you incorporate this lived experience for a variety of differences, your product becomes better and it becomes better for, let's say, everybody. This is what I've realized in time, right? Uh, Quite, quite fascinating. And I'm happy Even Break exists and I hope more Even Breaks will exist. I think this is what we need to get to, to a network of organizations that are um, extremely sought for. And um, uh, in a way, I agree with you on, we don't necessarily need to think like we need 
the ethics and the moral first, um, while I think personally, yes, I think we're both on the same line, but a lot of people don't react to that or they have so much pressure that they just need the uh, other side of the coin. Is there a financial incentive? Is there a product, product incentive? What I realized though, and tell me if you see the same with the, your partners, and then I'm curious to talk a bit about the, the partners that you've, you've uh, incorporated in your platform already as employers. What I realized working with C-level uh, hiring managers for women in technology programs, they've become more attuned to the topic as soon as they become, let's say they were mostly men, uh, yes. as they became fathers of daughters. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Personal to you, it's it's very different, isn't it? Right. And I think it's interesting because you know you say about the business case and the moral case, but they're kind of intertwined. I think. Oh, because sure. We we've had employers who have almost reluctantly taken disabled people on, and then been really surprised. At, oh, this was much easier than I thought it would be, and oh, it wasn't expensive, and and oh, look at this talent we've been missing out on. So it might have. Mm-hmm. You know, it might have gone from from maybe an ethical thing to oh, actually no, this is a business issue, or the other way around. Opportunity taken on, you know, a talented person with I don't know, say autism. You talk about tech, and uh, and actually then thought, oh my god, this is amazing. We've we've really changed somebody's life, and so I think the two are not mutually exclusive. You can be really profitable as a business because of the inclusion activities, but actually that also means you're a better employer. For, for everybody. So, you know, I think non-disabled people want to work for an organization that cares about its staff, regardless of whether they're disabled or not. So yes, as you say, you get things right for disability. Mm-hmm. Actually, everybody benefits. The business benefits financially, but also in terms of morale and in terms of better practice. You know, if you make software more accessible for disabled people, it automatically becomes easier to use for everybody else. And so th- there's no downside to inclusion. For sure. Uh, we, we spoke a bit about the impact on your employers once they've, your employer partners, when they've been through this process, realizing one, they can do something right. Two, it's not that difficult. Tell me a bit about the impact on the, the let's say the employees, people who have benefited from using your platform and getting into the right place. Um, because I, I want to maybe dive a bit deeper afterwards around the idea of impact on generations. I think, as you said, there is a more, more like sense of justice that perpetuates itself in a way, probably, right? Yes, for sure. Um, I mean, we have so many stories um, mm-hmm. which are, you know, lovely to tell. Some of them are internal because we only employ disabled people within um, Evenbreak. And and funnily enough, I was talking to somebody the other day about how working has become much more flexible since the pandemic and there's more home working and remote working and hybrid working and general understanding of flexibility. And I was thinking about our team and we employ currently 17 people directly and we have other uh, partners we work with as well. And if and I live in London, and if we had an office in London that those employees, the team members, were expected to, to get to, you know, yes. every day or a number of days a week or even two days a week, I would be the only employee. Yeah. Um, so I have managed to be able to employ people who are um, the best person for the job and not being restricted by, but they've got to live within travelling distance of of a, a particular location. So, you know, we have people in Scotland, people in Devon, people in the Midlands, people, you know, all over. And, um, and some 
of our team would really struggle, I think, to get work mm-hmm. elsewhere. Um, so, for example, we have, um, they don't mind me talking about this, um, two brothers who have yeah. um, ME very, very severely. Mm-hmm. And they work, um, w- one works for two hours a week and one works for one hour a week. And they split it up into 20-minute chunks. And it would be difficult to find an employer who was happy for that to happen, for someone to work from home, working 20 minutes at a time, six times a week or three times a week or whatever it would be. But they have been employed since they were 16 without a break and they're in their 20s now. And, um, you know, that's it's changed their lives because they have a role, they have a purpose. When they talk to their friends, they also have, you know, a career that they can talk about. So so it is life-changing for them, but it's life-changing for us because we get that talent that we wouldn't have otherwise got. So we have lots of internal lovely, you know, stories. Every uh, team member has, you know, amazing things they bring with them. Um, but when I, yeah, when, when we talk about candidates, you know, we've had candidates, for example, who've gone to their careers support service, maybe when they've come out of university yeah, and, and had so many limitations placed on, well, you'll never be able to do this and you'll never be able to do that. And then they've come to even break and they've perhaps had some coaching from our service, our coaching service, or they've used um, resources on our, on our career hive, or they've looked for jobs. And they've realized that actually the world is much more open to them than they, than they realize that actually you can do this job. You know, it may mean that you need a bit of assistive technology or you for need sure. some flexible working, but actually you'd be great for this job. And so we've had candidates come back to us and say, you know, not only have I managed to get work, I'm actually working in a job I love and I enjoy and I'm thriving in um, and still being able to enjoy flexible work, but also progression in their career. We had um, a a woman who was coached with us um, through, she really struggled with interviews. Her confidence was very low and one of our coaches gave her some um, practice, you know, it interview makes, practice yeah. uh, in a kind of a safe environment and gave her feedback. And she flew through the next interview she got and got the job she wanted. And within a month, went for a promotion within that organisation and <laughs> flew through that interview as well. And so, again, it's it's seeing people not just in work, but thriving and mm-hmm. developing um, and shining that that is actually what's really important it's not just somebody got a job because if it's not the right job that's not for me a success for sure and that Only- would be the option for anybody else but in this case everybody is just thinking is it because of the disability or is it because yeah. of my abilities right and it Absolutely. shouldn't yeah okay and everybody should have the opportunity to thrive in the workplace whether they're disabled or not Absolutely. Yes. Uh, preach <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, all this, sounds beautiful and you make it sound so easy but I <laughs> I'm curious though I think everybody who's starting on this journey so my my purpose somehow is that people in Austria or people in Lithuania who hear you to do the same right to kind of find a path to support communities in those regions but we know things are not easy right and what is it for you that you you hoped it will happen by now or uh, you're you're working on it but it's just harder than you estimated I think I think the problem you know of wh- whichever group we're talking about who is routinely excluded is so much bigger than one organization and, and, mm. and one of us are going to solve. And I really hoped, you know, we're, we're into our 11th year now 
And I really hoped that the disability employment gap in my own country, you know, would have reduced. Um, and it hasn't in real mm-hmm. terms. And so that's disappointing. There are a lot more disabled people in work than previously, but there are also a lot more non-disabled people in work than previously. So the gap hasn't really changed. Um, So that's disappointing. Um, I think things like, you know, when we lobby for change in legislation or in initiatives or in, you know, that's very, very slow, um, much slower than than you hope it will be, because to us, it's so obvious. It's Mm -hmm. such a no brainer that, you know, it's hard to understand why people don't, oh, of course you're right. Yeah, we, we need to do that. <laughs> and it doesn't work like that because no. people have other priorities. There are conflicting priorities. Some people just don't get it. Um, I'm not disabled, so it doesn't affect me. I'm not interested, you know, but you might become disabled because most of us become disabled as adults rather than as children or, or being born with it. Um, so that's very frustrating. I think um, if I were to say to anybody going on this journey now, the things that I have found really helpful, um, and I didn't find them straight away, of course, because you learn over years, but actually to save people learning as slowly as I did, one of the big things is is what we call co-production or co-design. So if you're designing a service for a group of people, whether that's refugees, whether it's people of colour, whether it's LGBTQIA plus community, whoever it is, involve people with lived experience in the design of that product or service or or, or organisation. Um, I did that in the sense that I only employed disabled people. So, you know, that, that lived experience d- designed and delivers everything we do. But also now what we do, so when we, we did the, the hive, for example, rather than just looking inward and saying to ourselves, what should this hive look like? What should we be offering? How should we be offering it? How should we be, mar- who should we work with? Although we're all disabled, we're still a smallish group of people and we're all employed by Evenbreak. Yeah. So what we did was we went out to, um, we, we sent surveys out to our candidates, which were, you know, in the thousands. And then we had a focus group of around 50 people and said to them, we're thinking of doing this, what do you think? Or what do you think would, you know, and we really listened to what they said. And the career hive looks nothing like it would have looked if we hadn't done that, even though we are people with lived experience. Right. So I think, you know, do as much involvement, engagement, co-design, co-production with people with lived experience of whatever the issue is that you're trying to address that would be my first biggest piece of advice. And I think the second one would be, you know, look for partners, look for people you can collaborate with because none of us are going to do this on our own. It's too big. But there will be lots of other smaller organisations who are all all have the same aim. They might be attacking different parts of the problem. They might be addressing the solution in different ways. But actually, if you can work in partnership with other organisations, you can achieve so much more so much more quickly yes. than if you're trying to do everything on your own and reinvent the wheel. So for us, you know, there are things that our clients may say to us, oh, we need someone to um, access the accessibility of our building. It's not a service we offer. Yeah. There are organisations led by people with lived experience who will do that. So rather than us trying to duplicate what they do and compete with them, we would work in partnership with them and say, can you come and offer this service to 
the clients we work with. So for me, it's very much about seeing who else is in this space. It's often social enterprise. Um, so join an enterprise, um, you know, the, in, in the UK, we have uh, the social enterprise mark, which which looks at uh, accrediting social enterprises, social enterprise UK, which is a membership organization. Mm-hmm. Um, find other organizations who are doing or at least addressing the, the problem that you're trying to address and see how you can work together cooperatively. Mm-hmm. And um, that actually works much better, I think, than trying to do everything for by sure. yourself. When we started this podcast, one of the key pillars is this is a Delta ecosystem. Nothing works yeah. in isolation. Not should, nothing should be born in isolation. Everything kind of just flows together. And I'm very happy that you you shared these two points of advice um, quite quite rich across the board anyway, your experience and how you are crystallizing this, right? Into yeah. how people could take it and uh, go to the next step. I think actually the third thing, which I've just thought about, sorry to interrupt, is um, intersectionality. So right. what I find can happen um, within, you know, when we talk about inclusion is that we become very focused on one group. So in our case, disabled mm-hmm. people. Um, and some organizations don't recognize that actually we're all intersectional. So if we're looking at being disability inclusive, we can't disregard and wouldn't want to disregard issues around race or gender or sexual orientation or age or culture or any of the other differences that people share, because none of us is just a disabled person. Exactly. We also have an ethnicity, a nationality, a gender, a sexual orientation, an age, a culture. And actually, if you look at disability in isolation, we're missing the bigger picture. It's like, you know, a lot of women's organisations look at straight, white, non-disabled women. That's not women. You know, women come in all shapes and sizes and colours. So we need to be aware of that intersectionality. And if an organisation is, um, you know, poor on race issues, it's going to be poor on everything else as well because everything intersects. Um, And so, yeah, the the, the third one is, you know, don't get so focused on one narrow area that you forget the intersectionality. Yeah. Um, And then you can become not inclusive because you're saying we're only working with, I don't know, refugees from that country or, you know, women from that you know, who is straight or whatever it might be. It's really important intersectionality. For sure. And it is a process because I think, again, each territory, like I work a lot on the US, the uh, underserved communities seem to be very different for some areas than, let's say, the UK or Germany. And we just need to learn that as well and be critical around challenging. Does this make sense here, right? Because it's, it will, and it's ever-changing as well. We also must have that in mind. Um, Jane, to wrap up, I think I'm very, very curious. What's next for Evenbrick? Oh, now this is really exciting. So <laughs> we've obviously grown tremendously over the 11 years that we've been going um, we started off just as a UK-based um, organisation, realised very quickly that obviously it's, it's, a, it's on the internet as a job board, so it um, anywhere in the world can access it. So we, we are already global. Around half of the jobs on the border in England, but the other half are around the world generally. So we're going to be looking at um, engaging much more with other countries as well to make it a, a, you know much more global than it is now. We're also looking at um, offering e-learning because through the pandemic, we recognised that, 
you know, people don't always turn up to in-person mm-hmm. events either because of access or because they're in a different country. So we're looking at um, offering e-learning both for employers and also for candidates and for other partner organisations who want to get better in this area. So, um, and also we just want to get better at what we do generally. So we need to let more disabled people know that we exist, let more employers know that we exist so we can just make sure that social social impact is much more broad. So, um, yeah, it's a very, very exciting time at the moment. And um, I, I'm this year is just looking, you know, <laughs> busy. Very busy, but very <laughs> exciting. Oh my God, I love it. This has been a beautiful conversation, Jane. Thank you so much for being with us uh, today. I do hope that we will speak again in a couple of years and we will hear yes. about you being across Europe, global. Uh, it definitely deserves. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for staying with us for the entire episode. You are the best. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to the We Include podcast on Spotify or the podcast provider of your choice. And don't forget to share in your networks. It's highly appreciated. You can find me on LinkedIn for suggestions of initiatives and topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. They are coming out weekly. Till next time, take care.